Hello, Jim. Hey there. Hey, listen. Little things first. Where little things make a big difference. You don't have to have sweeping reform to help your school get stronger, better, faster. Nope. It can be sometimes just the little things. So, who are we talking about now? Or talking with, not about. <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about him. We'll talk to him. <laughs> His name is Dr. Kevin Kumashiro. And um, he is an author and a scholar and... Um, uh, a professor, I believe he's worked at Stanford. Okay. We'll find out exactly. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's written a lot of really great works on anti-oppressive education. Okay. Um, and uh, he has a book that he's co-wrote most recently called Teaching Toward Democracy. Oh, nice. So I think that's kind of interesting. So yeah, let's talk to him. Okay, let's give him a call. Hi, Kevin. This is Jim Martin from Little Things First. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And your last name is Kumashiro. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, you are Kumashiro. Okay, great. Now, did you work for NEA for a period of time? Um, yeah, I did in the early 2000s. Yeah, I was um, a director uh, on the NEA board, and so I was back there, uh, and I remember seeing your name. Um, oh, how funny. All yeah. right, well, great to reconnect then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Small world, yeah. Yeah, uh, and where, so where are you? So I'm actually in Utah. So okay. um, currently I live in um, the Salt Lake County area, but I'm going to be moving to another part of Utah to be a principal in a rural area. So oh, Okay, yeah. awesome. Well, congrats on that. Thank you. And I'm here with my colleague, Tracy Van Deventer. All right. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Kevin. I did. I was not on the NEA board. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you anyway. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, um, I have followed your work for a long time, and um, so I thought that, you know, we'd love to be able to talk with you. And we've, we've started recording already, just for your information, but we wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your findings and some of what we can maybe take away from your work that would help us in schools, um, especially now, um, given our current climate. Um, will you tell us just a little bit about your background? Sure, yeah. I, um, so I grew up in Hawaii, and my mother was actually a teacher. Um, and my entire family ended up working either in the um, health field or in the education field. Um, so it sort of seemed almost natural or expected that I, too, would go into education. And so I started out as a teacher. I went into the Peace Corps, actually, to teach for a year, um, and then back in my home state of Hawaii. And then I moved into different roles. I was in graduate school. I worked in higher education. I worked for the National Education Association for a few years, um, and then most recently was uh, the dean of the School of Education at the University of San Francisco. And I feel very fortunate that that journey has allowed me to see the work of education from different vantage points, whether it's in K-12 schools, in higher education, in organized labor, or just as a scholar. Um, and in all of those vantage points, I feel like what 
just kept resonating with me was the need for us to really reframe how we understand the problems in education and to come up with better solutions so that we're not diving down the same kind of problematic reforms that we've been seeing over the past few decades. Yeah, um, Tracy and I just read a book together and we had a conversation about it. It's called Demoralized. And I know that you've, um, it talks about, you know, teachers and losing teachers in our profession. Um, I know you've written a little bit about the blame that gets lumped on teachers. Um, I think one of your books is called Bad Teacher. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Bad Teacher was my attempt. I actually wrote that um, in the midst of a lot of organizing, you know, sort of when Occupy Wall Street was happening, the attacks on organized labor in Wisconsin was happening, and it just seemed like the the gut reaction for so many, whether it's leaders, um, the media, or even the general public, was to say that schools are failing, and why are they failing? Because we have too many lazy and incompetent teachers. And so it was this kind of blaming of individual teachers, and in many instances, um, educational leaders and parents and students themselves, rather than looking at the systemic problems that actually are the much more kind of nuanced but complicated picture of what's actually happening in education. Um, you know, I like to say that you can have a school with 100% of your personnel, all very smart, highly trained, very hardworking, and super dedicated to their students, and you're still going to have major problems because the system of education, how we fund it, censorship, segregation, disenfranchisement of communities from decision-making, profiteering, and privatization, you have you know, high-stake testing, dumbing down of curriculum. You have these larger trends going on that define this moment in education that is going to hinder anyone's ability to teach regardless of skill and effort. So we do need to raise the quality of teaching and teachers, absolutely. But I'm trying to say in that book, as many others have argued, that the problem is much bigger than blaming individuals. We need to, we need to reframe our understanding of the problem from individual performance to broken systems. Mm, yeah, very, very true. If you had a magic wand... <laughs> What would be the first part of the system you would work on? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> first of all, I would love to have a magic wand. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I would say, for me, the, the first thing I would try to work on is probably the least tangible, most idealistic goal that we can identify, which is to shift our consciousness and our awareness and our understanding of the very enterprise and work that we call education. Um, you know, I think so much of why we're struggling to come up with better reforms is because of the very narrow ways that we're understanding why we have education in the first place. You know, is it only about job preparedness? Or is it only about learning um, to meet certain standards. Um, I, I think about this conversation I was having years ago with a colleague um, who was raising the question, if we were in a, um, like a totalitarian kind of fascist autocratic state uh, country, what would education look like? And, you know, we might imagine that it would be a super awesome um, form of education for the most elite. And then for the masses, 
we'd give something that's very under-resourced, really dumbed down, whereas the elite, elite might be learning to really question and think and lead. It's the masses that would be learning um, to follow and conform and simply regurgitate what it is that they're learning. In other words, it would look a lot like the kind of school system that we have here in this country. And so this person was asking, well, if we wanted education to serve democracy, um, what should that look like? And wouldn't it look differently than an education that is about conformity and kind of apartheid, you know, like giving something different to the elite versus the masses. And so what should education look like if it's in the service of democracy? This has kind of animated my a lot of my work. And in fact, with these colleagues that I was having a conversation with, we came up with a book called Teaching Towards Democracy, which is trying to grapple with that question. Um, and so, so again, magic wand, what would I want to see? I'd actually want to see um, the, the, the larger American public kind of grappling with the question of what should the role of education be in a much more complicated, um, um, I, um, what's the word, a much more philosophical kind of debate about what it is that we're hoping to accomplish through schools. And the smaller debates around policies like funding, curriculum, teacher preparation, all of these things would be informed then by that larger shift in consciousness that I think has to happen first. Mm, And do you think that that, you know, shift in consciousness would end up in, I mean, again, it's a magic wand, we realize, but is your intent then you think that we'd have one focus that we could all agree on or that there might be, because I'm noticing even across different like geographical areas, there seems to be a different shift on what people believe to be, you know, their definition of education. I guess my question is, do you feel like we could get to that place where we have an agreement about what education is? Um, I'm hoping that while there are are many instances many aspects of education where there will be disagreement and that probably would be a good thing. Like, I'm, I'm hoping that we continue throughout the history of education, the future of education, I should say, to debate um, what should be in curriculum mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, things like that. But there are other things where I hope that there is a more clear consensus on, like that education should be a public good and mm-hmm. not a commodity that mm-hmm. only those who have the resources can afford to buy the best version of. Like, I'm hoping that that is something that we as a country can kind of rally around and say, yes, this is, this is how we as the U.S. understand public education and the role of public education in this country. So those kind of more value statements, um, yeah. those priorities of the role, I'm hoping that that, that can be something that uh, the masses can rally around and find some shared ground Thank over. you. Thank you. That's great. Is is that some kind of a conversation that you think that schools could start to have? I mean, we obviously focus on the little things that schools and institutions can do. Can can a principal with a staff have this conversation about the purpose of school? And is that successful in a larger context that maybe is not having that conversation? Yeah, and again, going back to my eavesdropping over on the conversations, I love drawing on my colleagues when they're talking about things. And so I'm thinking about another colleague that was having a conversation, and I was actually not even in that one. I was listening to this conversation where they were saying, um, schools should actually be places where with our students, even with our youngest of students, we're asking constantly, why are we here? Like, mm-hmm. why schools? Why do we come to schools? Why are we learning this topic? And for what 
What is the outcome that we're hoping to see by grappling with these questions? Um, and so whether we're talking about working with our students or whether we're talking about principals working with their teachers or whether we're talking about the school board working with the community, I feel like these, this bigger question of why education or how can education better serve democracy absolutely should be something that is constantly a part of our conversation. And, you know, to kind of go to your um your, your question around the, the little things that we can do, I do feel like in some ways this is a, is a little thing, right? Like something that we constantly are asking our students, our colleagues, our communities, um, why are we here? What does it mean to, for education to better serve democracy? But I also feel like it then translates for me into um, another way to think about the little things that we can do, which is to build our base, which is to build our collective. Um, I like to think of education, you know, my kind of, ref my, my um, imagining of what education could be um, is to think of education that, as something that's much more central to social movement building. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's a part of larger social movements. And social movements aren't an organization. They're not an initiative. They're not what one leader wants to do. A social movement is something that is very grounds up ground up and it kind of bubbles up from the masses and it's it's fractured and it's contested but it is about shifting consciousness among the people among the masses and so building our collective building who the we is that's trying to engage in this bigger battle i think is a really central part of what has to happen if we really want to shift the direction that education is moving in and that collective that collectivization, that kind of consolidating of the sectors, uh, um, is is about um, you know stronger partnerships between schools and communities, between teachers and parents, between teachers and students, or even around rethinking organized labor, so that it is so much more a part of some of the you know organized labor has had problematic histories in this country, and it's also had amazingly progressive um, impact in this country. And it's the moments when organized labor has been able to engage in radically reframing and re-understanding the possibilities of work that it's been able to make really progressive change. And that includes in the education sector. So what does it mean for us not just to join unions, but to fashion them in ways that are in the service of democracy, or not just to build up school community partnerships, but to fashion those partnerships in the service of democracy building. I think that's, um, it, it sounds like a lofty goal, but I do think it is one of the small things we can do is to build our base for that kind of action. So the title of your book is Teaching Toward Democracy, Educators as Agents of Change. Can you talk a little bit about, like, I think some people might even have different views of democracy um, and what's meant by that. And so, like, can you talk a little bit about that and what teaching toward democracy might look like and how educators might serve as agents of change. Yeah, we use the term agents of change to kind of um, uh, identify some of the major areas of work that teachers engage in and to pose some questions about what it means to do that work that can better serve democracy and justice, which I'll talk about in a moment. But in terms of agents of change, so we tried to talk about, the book I think has maybe five main chapters, and so we talked about how do we think about the role of the teacher, how do we think about curriculum, community engagement, um, you know, uh, impacting policy, you know, we, we sort of did that kind of work, um, looking at the major types of work we do and saying, well, what does it mean for us to 
uh, see this more in the in the role of advancing democracy and justice. And so, democracy, yeah, I, I feel like such a con- um, complicated term because democracy, um, at least U.S. democracy, hasn't always served everyone, right? Sometimes it's come at the expense of other populations, such as indigenous populations that we were colonizing, um, enslaved populations that we were importing for work. I mean, you know, so democracy is, is actually not something that is always, um, or, or in all ways, a positive. Democracy is something that has to constantly be contested and questioned and remade. And I think that's it's a it's a theme that democracy must be constantly held accountable to itself. We must constantly rework it. That's a theme that we're trying to animate in education as well. We're trying to say education is, a, you know, we've created a school system in this country that today we use language of equal educational opportunity, helping everyone to, you know, preparing everyone to succeed, leveling the playing field. We use that kind of language today to talk about the purpose. But the reality is that we created the earliest public schools in this country for only the most elite. And as we are forced to integrate more and more, we just came up with more and more ways to differentiate and sort students, such as through exclusion or segregation or tracking or labeling or disciplining. So while the purpose may have we may have defined them that purpose differently, and today it might be sounding quite lofty. The reality is that the function of schools historically has been to socialize and sort. And when we talk about the achievement gap, you know, uh, some say that this is a sign that schools are failing. Well, if you look at my the history I just painted, the achievement gap is actually a sign that schools are succeeding. They're accomplishing exactly what they were set up to accomplish. So our job is actually to dive into this contradiction that we want schools to democratize, even though they weren't actually designed to do that. And so what does it mean? to engage in an institution in a way that's contradictory to its kind of origin. And I, I think that's, you know, so we're not trying to wish away that contradiction. We're trying to actually dive into it. Same with democracy. Democracy has um, historically uh, had this kind of tension between being both liberatory and quite oppressive. Our job isn't to ignore those realities. Our job is to say that is democracy, is to constantly dive into those contradictions to force ourselves to constantly try to make it better and better. Um, so that's sort of my understanding of democracy, is that it's this contested um, ideal that historically has defined um, not only where we've gone wrong as a country, but it's, it's, it's in our battles over making democracy truer to itself that we see some of the important gains that we've made as a country. Um, and education, therefore, should not only parallel that, but it should contribute to that very messy but necessary work. Mm. We spoke earlier um, with a principal who's from Wisconsin who made reference to, I don't know if it's called Rule 10, or, um, but, you know, that, that um, really removing the collective bargaining. And he, and he talked a little bit about that effect on his schools. And I'm curious, how do you feel that that decision has maybe shifted the work that's being done in Wisconsin compared to other other areas? Yeah, so if this is in reference to the work under the Scott Walker regime yeah. that really weakened collective bargaining, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to look at the last decade where there's been so much concerted attacks on organized labor and collective bargaining. And um, 
one one of the things that we thought was going to happen was that the labor unions, particularly the National Education Association and American Federation of Teachers across the country, were going to lose a lot of membership. Um, but actually, we didn't see the big losses that we expected. And I think part of it was because you know, it, it became a rallying cry to say, well, actually, mm-hmm. let's reframe <laughs> how we understand unions. But I, I think that there's a, actually a, another thing that was happening over the, over the past decade that was a very powerful counter to the organized attacks on labor. And that was that labor, um, particularly education labor, was beginning to <clears throat> um, redefine how they were going to engage in work. And it, it began to reminisce or it began to reflect some of the earlier strategies um, that we moved away from in the last few decades of the 20th century. So basically what, what was happening, my understanding of what was happening in organized labor is, you know, so we've had teacher unions since the mid-1800s, and there's been a shift back and forth between whether they were more kind of a professional association or whether they were more kind of um, like trade associations. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, were they more like professional or were they more like the CIO or the yeah. uh, Congress of, right? And I think what we saw in the late, uh, like r- around 2012 and then again around 2019, particularly with the Chicago teacher strike, uh, the, the strikes that happened in those two years, was a return to different kinds of organizing strategies where it was less about compromise and working with the power structure and it was more about consciousness raising um, collectivization, engaging the community for support, and pushing back to say, actually, our negotiations over the contract is not going to be only about um, compensation. It's actually going to be an opportunity to raise public awareness about where the reforms in education are going wrong. This is called bargaining for the um, the. Uh, public good, right? It's kind of, it's sort of bargaining that's far beyond my own personal compensation. And I think this shows, again, strategies from decades earlier when unions were much more in, in line with kind of movement building strategies around building up partnerships with the community, raising public consciousness about the larger issues. And so it's interesting that it's at the same time that we see attacks, as well as the Supreme Court decisions, right, that was attacking um, collective bargaining um, rights, you also see the unions beginning to redefine themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think that then informed the wildcat or the unauthorized strikes that happened in the spring of 2018 in mainly those six red right-to-work states um, where you saw people who weren't even striking as part of their unions. In fact, sometimes they were going against their unions to strike, but it really was about pushing the public debate um, in terms of what should schools look like and where have we gone wrong. So it is a really interesting moment with the tax on unions, but also um, organizing, taking us in a different direction. Do you feel that this is moving down to the building level where this dialogue might be happening more than it has in the past as far as, and I'm, I'm referring to just between like colleagues and leadership, why are we here? What's the best, you know, thing for us to do? Do you sense that happening at a building level? Um, I think in some, uh, within some unions, that probably is happening more at the building level. Um, and I, you know, I think Chicago might be one of the examples of where there was a lot more happening at the building level. I mean, that was a, one of their intentional strategies was to actually take these conversations into the schools, into the individual schools, rather than this kind of 
just at the union leadership level. Um, and that's definitely not happening um, everywhere, but I do think that that is what we need to see happening, is that in our, in our much smaller bubbles, whether mm-hmm. that's our, right, whether that's our school site, whether that's our neighborhood, our classroom, those kinds of conversations are incredibly important, and I, I hope that they are happening more and more frequently. Mm-hmm. So, um, Dr. Kumashiro, uh, what is anti-oppressive education, and how ought leaders be uh, shaping school culture so it is anti-oppressive? Um, I I bring that up because you've written about anti-oppressive education. I'm wondering how it differs from you know what we're hearing a lot of about right now, anti-racism. Um, I know you've written extensively about LGBTQ plus communities and how we um, make sure uh, we protect our LGBTQ plus community in schools. So can you talk a little bit about anti-oppressive education from those vantage points? I know I've thrown out a whole lot there, but... <laughs> yeah, I... Um, began to use the term anti-oppressive education um, back in the 90s, and I still use that term because I find it so helpful. So why I, I wanted, and I wasn't the first to use that term, but why I liked and resonated with that term is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things. One is that why, why is it called anti-oppressive? Well, it actually builds on what I was saying a few moments ago in terms of how the, the, the norm, the natural state of schooling is, is, is not neutral, bias-free, and just, that the natural state of schooling is actually infused with and permeated with all sorts of biases, right? Like, what are we teaching? Whose perspectives are we teaching? Who are we most serving? Who gets the best form of education? Who gets the most resources? So anti-oppressive education begins with the assumption that schools are not neutral places, that they historically and today perpetuate bias and injustice. And, and, um, to, to do really good education, we actually need to intentionally counter those legacies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second reason I use, and I, I like this term, is that, um, you know, my earlier work, as you were mentioning, um, I was diving into, you know, how schools both support and harm LGBTQ plus, plus students, as well as students of color, as well as students at the intersections of these different markers. And so I wanted to draw on the literature of anti-racist and multicultural education, but also um, LGBTQ and queer pedagogies, feminist pedagogies, critical, post-colonial. I wanted to draw on all of these different traditions as I tried to address uh, the intersectional nature of our identity, the multiple and intersectional nature of our identities and of different forms of inequities and injustices. And so anti-oppressive becomes this umbrella term that not only includes multiple strands, but demands that we look at the intersections of multiple kind of traditions and strands of research, like around race and sexuality and things like that. So addressing legacies of injustice and in addressing intersections, I think, is why I, I have resonated with that term anti-oppressive, and that's how I try to animate it um, in my work. Very nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very powerful, the whole concept of anti-oppressive education. How can schools be more anti-oppressive? Oh, yes. How can schools be more anti-oppressive? <laughs> ah, I mean, I, you know... <clears throat> 
Um, I'm working with this network of deans across the country. We call ourselves Education Deans for Justice and Equity. Oh, um, wow. it's, um, current and former deans of schools of education across the country. And we came up with this framework. We call it the Framework for Assessment and Transformation. Um, and it is... It is about how to build better schools and colleges, and I, I'm bringing it up because there's one thing in there that I think K-12 schools can also really benefit from, and it's, it's, um, it's to say that every college and school has these multiple areas of work that we all do, curriculum, we, we have to think about student experience, faculty diversity, fair budgeting, shared governance, right? We have all these areas of work that we do. And normally when we try to ask ourselves, how do we be more anti-oppressive, we come up with maybe the latest trend or an activity we can do, right? We come up with things that we can add to our, our, the mix. And what the framework does is it says, actually looking for best practices is not the starting point. The starting point is to ask ourselves, how historically has that aspect of our institution served counter-purposes, anti-democratic, unjust purposes. Like, how historically has the curriculum been Eurocentric? And how historically has budgeting been very neoliberal and based off of the corporate models? And how historically has faculty recruitment, you know, kind of... Um, what do you call it? solidified the what we call the demographic imperative in education, which in education, the world of schools, you know, it's mostly what is it, over or around eighty percent white female. Like how this is the legacies that we need that we are in, that we're that we see continue and perpetuated. So addressing or transforming our schools and colleges to be more anti oppressive actually involves starting with the legacies. It starts by understanding how historically these different aspects of our work have served problematic purposes. And then we, we try to imagine, well, how then do we do things differently, right? And the example I like to give about why that question is so important is um, schools of education. We tend to not get enough students of color. So we're focused on recruiting and retaining more students of color. But what I like to say is if you haven't addressed the fact that universities were not intended to serve students of color from their beginnings, mm -hmm. and you haven't changed how we treat students of color, then all you're doing is recruiting more students of color into an institution that still does not have the capacity to serve them. You actually have to start with the beginning, start with how we design schools not to serve students of color. That's what first needs to change. And then let's talk about strategies to recruit and retain. So that's, I think, my big suggestion for thinking about how can schools be more anti-oppressive, is we start with these much bigger questions about history and legacies, and then we look at practices that can counter those trends. Mm, powerful. Um, I, I have a question about, um, and I know it's on some people's minds, the the recent uh, pandemic and um, the way that Asian Americans are um, treated as a result of the pandemic and the 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 way the pandemic, the coronavirus, has been described sometimes as. Um, well, you know, by the president of the United States as, you know, the China virus. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, being an Asian American yourself, I mean, I'm wondering what, how you feel about where we are uh, with anti-oppressive education and, um, 
and the pandemic, what, what's going to come of the pandemic? Is it going to be better or worse? And any thoughts, reflections? Yeah, back in April, I wrote this piece about um, the coronavirus pandemic and anti-Asian racism. And sadly, I think the problem has continued to get worse. So the way I make sense of this um, issue is to look back at um, the history of racism against Asians and Asian Americans in this country. Because I think when you look over the past 200 years, what we see is that one of the major um, stereotypes or kind of rhetoric about Asians and Asian Americans, particularly Chinese, which is relevant to today, is that this is a population that spreads disease. So, you know, cholera, bubonic plague, syphilis, trachoma, I mean, all of these things were attributed, some of these plagues were attributed to Chinese immigrants and sometimes Japanese as well. And it then had it had policy consequence because it, it actually justified exclusion laws from immigration. It justified school segregation. It even justified burning an entire city down because they thought that all this filth and disease was going to be spreading. So what I like to remind myself, though, is that all of these um, occurrences of, uh, whether it's rhetoric or stereotypes or whatever, occur for political reasons. Like, this is what we should always be asking. When hateful, racist rhetoric arises, what's the political outcome that we think is being hoped for by bringing that up, right? In the past, you can say very easily that bringing up racialized, racializing disease was a way to, put, put, to push anti-immigration laws or school segregation laws. So what's happening now? Well, to me, one of the major... Um, outcomes of racializing disease and point, putting the blame on China and saying that maybe this is germ warfare, maybe this was intentional, um, maybe they're just, you know, um, dirty and diseased. I think that what it does is it <clears throat> detracts attention from where, <clears throat> excuse me, from where the current administration has fallen short in terms of grappling with the disease. And I think that this is a particularly important moment to think about how China, um, China baiting, red baiting, all of that gets played up because of the presidential election. And actually, one of the things that we saw, and one of the things we know throughout history, is that red baiting, communist baiting, China baiting is one way to play up um, politics in, in a particular moment. It's one way to kind of assert a particular image of what the U.S. government what politics should look like. And <clears throat> I think it's sad that both the Trump camp as well as the Biden camp was engaging in kind of anti-China rhetoric over the last few months. And this is why I'm saying it's particularly urgent, because I think many people are wondering whether anti-China sentiment is going to only increase as we move forward um, with, with, the, with the election. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, disease is a moment, I mean, pandemics are a moment for us to double down on racist, conservative um, ideology, and it's also a moment, though, when new ideas can push forward and, and inaugurate 
a, a significant shift. And um, this is what Arundhati Roy calls the, you know, the, the portal, right? Is, is this a moment for us to retreat or is this a moment for us to say, to imagine something better? Um, and I think that's why activism around these, this kind of rhetoric is so important. It's not just people being mean or being ignorant. There actually is political consequence to this kind of rhetoric, any kind of hurtful rhetoric. We need to understand what is what might be the outcome, and how do we push back against that? And where can we find the piece that you wrote that you mentioned? Um, so that piece is in a, a journal, called, a magazine called Insight into Diversity. Um, and I think it's just, if you just Google Insight into Diversity, you'll be able to find that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Tracy has one more question. Yeah, one final question. <laughs> Uh, and I, it maybe goes along because I was the magic wand girl too, right? <laughs> so maybe that's why I wasn't on the NEA board, huh? <laughs> our, our final question we ask all of our guests is, if you could travel in a time machine and go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give your younger self about the little things that make a difference? Going back to talk to my younger self. Wow, <laughs> this feels like I'm in therapy. <laughs> um, it depends on what you say, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think um, I uh, throughout my career, I'm um, starting from even when I was in school thinking about where did I want to go after school? What did I want to do afterwards? Um, I moved around a lot and I'm not always sure I knew why I was jumping from place to place, job to job, from types of work to types of work. And what I've appreciated more recently is thinking about what's the kind of intervention that I most want to make in this moment. Um, in other words, what does that opportunity versus this opportunity allow me to do that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do? Um, every opportunity is a platform to try to bring about change in different ways, to grow in different ways, um, and to make an intervention in the world in different ways. Um, it's why I think different jobs allow us to do that. It's also why I think different collectives and different communities, being parts of different collectives and communities allow us to work in different ways. Um, and I think this is maybe one thing that I would say to myself is, you know, nothing wrong with moving around and nothing wrong, and we should all be growing and changing. Um, but I think it would be helpful to think about what's the intervention that you want to make in the world. What does the, or I should say, what is happening in this moment? How do you understand what's happening in this particular political moment? What are the capacities, skill sets, interests, connections that you have that you can bring to bear on that moment? And then what's the intervention? Um, what's the position that will allow you to make the kind of intervention that you want to make? Um, I think that's why, for example, I left my most recent position to do the kind of work that I'm doing now, which is a lot of, um, you know, kind of consulting work for educational leaders who are trying to build very different kinds of institutions. And I feel like it's an intervention I couldn't have made five years ago, and it might not be the intervention that is most needed five years from now. Um, so naming the moment, kind of reflecting on the capacities that we have to leverage, and then thinking about the opportunities that allow us to have the impact we want to have. I think those that kind of intentionality might make me feel a lot more focused in my life and hopefully is a 
is a is a framing or a set of questions that others might find helpful as well. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time out of your busy, you know, week with us. We really appreciate it. We love hearing from from people from all different kinds of backgrounds and you have given us so much to think about and and I think really inform the work that we're doing. So we appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kunisher. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great being in conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Take have, care. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah.